All right, well, good morning to UMBC. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. It's great to uh, continue our series through First and Second Samuel as we pick up the story in chapter 25. For context, if you're coming in in the middle of the movie here, uh, we are in the middle of our series. And First Samuel chapter 25 is a season where there's a different king, King Saul, who's still on the throne. And King Saul burns with jealousy for this man, uh, David. He actually wants to kill David. So David is actually on the run, uh, and he gathers around himself a group of supporters, and we call them David's mighty men in the Bible. But while David is on the run, in our passage today, David gets into trouble uh, because of a decision that he makes, and he's rescued by a woman. And so that's where we are. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel 25. And as we pick up the story today, let me ask you a very personalized question to get you thinking about our topic. Do you have any enemies? Do you have any enemies? Are there people who don't like you? Are there people in your life who despise you, who hate you? Uh, Let me offer to you a definition in case this isn't clear enough. An enemy is a person toward whom or from whom there's ongoing hostility. Do you have any enemies? I know it's hard to wrap your mind around this. You all seem like very nice people. A recent study actually showed that 25.8% of Americans think that they have no enemies. And maybe you're here today, and that's how you feel. You feel that you have no enemies. But can I be honest with you today when I say, I don't believe you? See, the problem is that Hollywood has given us a rather obvious picture of what an enemy should should look like. Hollywood says your enemy should have a cape, and they should have pointy teeth, and they should look something like... Thanos from the Marvel series. But in reality, our enemies might look a little bit more like a family member, like our grandfather, uh, like a neighbor, or a co-worker, a former spouse even, maybe one of your siblings. We all have enemies. Uh, Let me share with you specifically three different classes of enemies to help you create some categories. I got these from my friend Craig. He says, there's class A enemies. Class A enemies are personal and painful. These are people you see every day, or at least every week. This is your boss at work. This is your coworker. Uh, This is your spouse, or your child, or your neighbor. You see these people all of the time. Is anybody coming to mind? If so, keep them in your mind throughout the sermon today. Then there's class B enemies. These are distant but damaging. Not as close as class A enemies. You see them less frequently. You see them at holidays from time to time. You see them uh, maybe on special occasions. Maybe this is an extended family member. You see them on Thanksgiving. Maybe this is a colleague that you see at that conference every year for work. That's a class B enemy. And then we have class C enemies. These are impersonal but impactful. Now, unlike the first two classifications, these are people you don't know. And they don't know you either. But the hostility is still there. In fact, you think about them a lot. Your hostility might be based on faith or politics or sports teams. For you Mets fans, any uh, Braves hatred out there this morning after what happened last night? Uh, The class C enemy can be based on ethnicity or religion or where you live or what you look like or other factors. Class C enemies. As an example of a class C enemy situation, uh, musician Linda Ronstadt said, 
when I'm performing at a concert, if I find out that there are people there for the concert who are conservative Republicans or fundamentalist Christians, it really bothers me as I'm performing. I don't like to think about them being out there. That's a class C enemy. So how about you? Who are your enemies? We all have enemies. How does God want us to respond to our enemies? Let me remind you of something that we call the golden rule. The golden rule. You know the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Everybody knows about this. This is from the Lord Jesus. He taught it in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great way to live. It's a wonderful ethic to to go by. But there's another version of the golden rule that can really get us into trouble, and it goes like this. Do unto others as others have done unto you. Now, be honest. You ever feel like following this golden rule instead of the other golden rule? The second golden rule just kind of feels more fair, right? The second golden rule feels right. This feels just. I mean, they deserved it, right? So a lot of times we're tempted to live by this second rule. And when we do, it makes a gigantic mess. Uh, Pastor Andy Stanley says it this way. He says, the problem with getting back at people or getting even is that it makes you even with someone that you don't even like. Why would you want to be even with someone that you don't even like? That makes no sense. Why would you want to be like them? Why would you want to get back at them? That doesn't really make any sense. Or another complicated factor here is sometimes you can't get back at them, and so you say, well, I'm going to take it out on somebody else because I can't take it out on them, so all of your anger gets taken somewhere where it doesn't really deserve to go. I feel powerless in one area of my life, and so I want to feel powerful in another situation. And then that makes it even bigger mess. So how does God expect us to fix all of this? How does God expect us to interact with these kind of difficult people in our lives? That's the topic of 1 Samuel 25. I've titled the message, The Problem of Revenge. And in our passage, we're going to see this problem on full display with three different parts. Part one, we'll see repaying good with evil. Part two, we're going to see repaying evil with evil. And then part three, we'll see repaying evil with good. So that's where we're headed. Why don't we pray and ask the Lord for his blessing on our time. Father, we pause for a moment, bowing before your word in humility. Thank you for preserving this amazing text. I I pray that the words would like leap off the page to help us to meet us where we are today. So Spirit of the living God, only you can do that, and we invite you to dominate this place. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Okay, 1 Samuel 25, verse 1, begins with these three ominous words, now Samuel died. I want you to feel the gravity of these three words. Sometimes a news story is so momentous that all that makes it into the headlines is not some clever turn of phrase, it's not some clickbait, but it's just simply the stark facts. Here's a couple of examples. On April 13th, 1912, the Boston Daily Globe read, Titanic sinks, 1,500 die. Or many of us remember this headline from September 12th, 2001. How many of you remember this one from the New York Times? U.S. attacked. Here in verse 1 of chapter 25 is a momentous headline, three words, now Samuel died. The reason this is significant is because, first of all, Samuel was one of the first characters we met in this book. He was a prophet. He was the final judge. He was a transitional figure. 
He's the most important leader in Israel's history since Joshua. And now he's gone. And, and secondly, the reason this is such a big deal for our purposes specifically is you may remember that it was Samuel who was the one who anointed David as king. It was Samuel who was the one who chose him out in the sheepfold from Jesse's family. But Samuel never lived to see the day where that prophecy would come true. Samuel never got to see David on the actual throne of Israel. And here now, he's gone. David has just lost his greatest supporter. Now Samuel died. I want you to think of that because I think it plays into understanding David's mindset and behavior as chapter 25 unfolds. We pick up the story with verse 2. It says, A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Okay, so pause right there. We meet a few new characters in our story. Uh, the first one we meet is Abigail. The text says in verse 3 that Abigail was both intelligent and beautiful. The term intelligent, sekel, in the Hebrew doesn't just refer to mental aptitude like she did really well on her SATs. In the original, this was a moral quality. We see that in Psalm 111, verse 10. This is important because in Proverbs, it says that a beautiful woman's attractiveness can actually be negated if this quality is absent. You'll recall this is a repeated theme in the book of 1 Samuel. People look at the external appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So she's described here, and also later in verse 33, with a certain intelligence, a good judgment, a, a discernment, if you will. She is the fulfillment of the wise woman of Proverbs 31. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. Amen. And so this is an exhortation, especially for the ladies here. Make sure you're focusing not just on external beauty, but on internal beauty. Abigail has both. The second character we meet here is named Nabal. He's described as a surly and mean individual. The term Ra in Hebrew means evil or wicked. It's the same exact term used earlier in 1 Samuel to describe Eli's sons who were wicked. And the term Nabal actually means fool in Hebrew. Like in Psalm 14.1, which David wrote, by the way, it says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Literally, it reads, Nabal says in his heart there is no God. Now, some people who are parents in the room go, why in the world would you name your son Fool, right? <laughs> and she probably didn't name her son Fool. There's a little bit of a play on words here. It's probably a homonym. It doesn't exactly mean Fool, but the word play is very significant for our purposes in light of what's going to happen in the story as he really is going to act like a fool. So there's our two characters, Abigail and Nabal. Let's continue the story. Verse 4. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. So here's the greeting, a little bit of background for you. Shearing sheep was like getting an annual paycheck. This was a festive time. The owner is feeling wealthy. The owner is feeling generous. Everybody is celebrating. Everybody's getting cash. That's what's happening. It's payday. And David knows this. And in light of the background, he says, sends 10 of his mighty men to go talk to Nabal 
and give him some instructions. And we find those in verse 7. Say to him this, Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So there's the request. And what's going on here is David is on the run with his mighty men, and David has refused to become a bandit. David has refused to pillage. David instead rather offers his services of protection to local sheep owners, and he feels that that gesture is worthy of some remuneration. In other words, the message that David is sending here is, hey, we were kind to you. We expect you now to be kind back to us. It's the golden rule, right? But that's not what happens. Verse 9. So when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. Verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Now, Nabal's response is very wrong. Here, David had protected Nabal and his sheep and his field and his men from danger. This was something good. And Nabal is responding to that good with evil. David, David's just a rebel. David, I don't, he's an outlaw. I don't, I don't know. I don't owe him anything. I don't know David. Why should I care about him? Imagine, if you will, you go out to a restaurant, and you have a very large party. And let's say a party of 30 people. There's a, a, a waitress that's been taking good care of your whole party. You're there for a couple of hours, from appetizers all the way into dessert, you get great service, and then everybody leaves the restaurant, and there is no tip on the table for the waitress. Stiffed. This is kind of like the feel of what's happening here. David has provided service, and now David and his men are getting stiffed. Only it's so much more serious than dinner at a restaurant. The stakes were much higher. Nabal's field was protected from very real danger, and David and his men were experiencing very real hunger and thirst as they're on the run, and a little reasonable exchange should not be too much to ask. This is a blatant gesture of disrespect from Nabal to David. Okay, a couple days ago, I'm driving in the car with my youngest daughter, Felicity, and we're chatting because she happens to be studying the book of Exodus. And I'm like, what are you studying about in Exodus? She's in the middle of chapter 5, and she said, you know, Dad, it's interesting that Pharaoh doesn't get named in the book of Exodus. I said, yeah, that's interesting literary technique. He's so concerned about his name and his glory, and yet his name's not even preserved for us. That's interesting. And there's this question that gets asked in chapter 5 of Exodus, where Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, the Lord has told you to let my people go. And in chapter 5 of Exodus, Pharaoh asks a very specific question. Maybe you remember this because we went through Exodus last fall. Pharaoh says this, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Anybody remember that question? Yeah, you've heard that before. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That is the exact same Hebrew construction that we find here in 1 Samuel chapter 25. See, Nabal is starting to sound like Pharaoh. 
His question is exactly the same question and the exact same issue. Who is David? Who is the Lord? Take a look at the next slide just to see the comparison. That's meant to tell the reader something because the issue behind the question is the same issue. And that issue is simply this. Will you recognize God's authority? Will you recognize God's rule? See, back in Exodus is will you recognize the Lord and his command? But here in 1 Samuel, God has anointed David. Will you recognize God's anointed Messiah? Will you recognize God's man, David, as king? And Nabal is starting to sound like Pharaoh, and this tells us, the readers, things are not looking good. We remember what happened to Pharaoh. Things are not looking good for Nabal. So there's some foreshadowing here. The title of the series is We Need a King. Nabal doesn't want a king. Nabal wants to be king. And that's the issue. The story goes on in verse 12. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. Now at this point, if you're watching the movie, this is where the soundtrack changes to something really ominous. Something's about to go down. David's about to avenge himself. David's about to seek revenge. Now, do you know that self-control is kind of like a muscle that wears out over time? It fatigues. David has had enough. He is totally burnt out. He won't be recognized as king. His mentor, Samuel, is dead. Saul is seeking to take his life. He's on the run. He's famished. He's thirsty. And now he's helping this guy out. And this guy won't even provide minimal supplies to help him and his men. And David is frustrated and sick of it all. You know that phrase, hurt people, hurt people? This is like an ancient version of that. Hunted people, hunt people. That's where David is. Now, David's response to what has been the revulsion of this man Nabal is understandable. The man responded in an evil way to David's expression of good. However, the action that David is planning is also not good. So take a look at this text, verse 14. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings. But he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall all around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. I want you to notice in this text that Abigail has godly ambition. She is not someone who lets the grass grow underneath of her feet. Three times, if you check the text, you'll see that she acts quickly. She's in a hurry. First of all, she's in a hurry to meet David. The text goes on to say this. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five, next slide please, five sias of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys, verse 19. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal, good move, number one. Just leave this guy out of this. 
Number two, I want you to notice that she wisely brings food. Okay, men are simple creatures, <laughs> right? You know the old expression, the fastest way to a man's heart is through his what? Through his stomach. Now, I'm kind of half joking here, but this is what's going on. The men are hungry, and just like today, it's a common act of hospitality to send greetings in this way. In those days, this is what they did. In fact, here's an image I found from Egypt of some people bringing food and gifts as a goodwill gesture as they're on their way to this negotiation. This is what Abigail does. She sends the supplies ahead of time, and then she follows behind. Take a look at verse 20. As she came riding on her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. Did you notice those three words? This is Nabal's behavior, evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. So just picture the scene for a second. Here's David, and here's all of his mighty warrior men snaking down through this ravine, and here's this woman on a donkey riding toward them. And David is about to let go of all of his rage and all of his anger, and he's about to kill Nabal and all of his entourage because Nabal has paid back good with evil. David reminds me of General George Patton, who said this, May God have mercy on my enemies, because I won't. This is David. He's had enough. And that leads us to movement two, repaying evil with evil. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning. When you are deeply wronged by another person, even in the worst kinds of sins, you must guard your heart lest that sin take root and metastasize into a thousand other sins. There's a famous quote that says, be careful, lest in fighting the dragon, you become the dragon. This is exactly what happens here. The victim is about to become the abuser. And this is what's gonna continue the cycle of violence and revenge. David's instinct for justice here is correct, but his method is ruthless and excessive. And so David's about to repay evil with evil until David meets Abigail for the first time. And thank God for this woman. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Now, don't misunderstand this as some kind of sexist message about the inferiority of women. This was a sign of respect for those in authority. Here's a picture of men bowing down out of respect for a leader, also taken from Egypt. So this is Abigail's posture, unlike her husband Nabal, who will not recognize David's authority as God's anointed king. Abigail, on the other hand, shows respect. She bows down prostrate before the one who's in authority. She brings gifts in fact, 15 times in this passage, she's going to refer to David as my Lord. Six different times in this passage, she'll refer to herself as a servant. And here she's going to give this amazing speech. And it's actually a lesson in how we should approach somebody in a context along these lines. So pay careful attention to this speech. Take a look, verse 24. 
She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. So notice first, pause right here. Abigail says, David, don't pay any attention to Nabal. He is just like his name. He is a fool. He's a fool by name. He's a fool by nature. Robert Alter, in his commentary, says, quote, it is hard to think of another instance in literature in which a wife so quickly and so devastatingly interposes distance between herself and her husband. It's quite striking. Abigail continues, verse 26. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Pause right there. Here's what, here's what Abigail is doing. She is picturing a very different future for David than the one that David is about to create for himself. Now allow me to speak to the wives in the room for just a second. Ladies, here's a tip. You can do this to us and it works even though we even know what you're doing while you're doing it. We want your respect so much that we will pause and we will listen to you in this moment. This is, this is like a Jedi mind trick. You're, you're not, not going to do, David, what you're about to do. You're not, you're not going to do this, David. You, there's a different future for you, David. This is Abigail. She's beginning to treat David not as the person he is, but as the person he's going to become. Amen. Verse 28. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. When did he do that? And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies... He will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Now look very carefully at her words. Notice, Abigail is well aware of where David has come from. Verse 28, you fight the Lord's battles. And notice the word picture she draws in verse 29. The lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Look at the imagery. Out of all the word pictures, out of all the images she could have chose to use in this moment, she chooses to use the image of a slingshot. Why does she do that? You know why. She's doing that because she's taking David back to a time when he was 15 years old. And a time when he trusted the Lord and the Lord came through for him. And what she's saying is, David, just as you trusted in the Lord back then, you can trust him right now. Amen. Friends, what the Lord has done for you in the past is there for you to remember so that you might continue to trust the Lord right now in the present. This is what she's telling David. Amen. Secondly, I want you to notice this image that she gives of this bundle, which is a confusing term. The term was used for an ancient wallet. You would take your money and you would like wind it up and tuck this leather pouch like in your belt when you had something valuable that you had to travel with so that it would never be taken, so that it would never be lost. This is what Abigail is saying about David's whole life. 
The Lord your God's like a running back with that football, man. He's going to, he's going to the end zone. He's not going to let go. You are like, you're like, you're, your life is tucked away in the wallet of God himself. God has you, and your life is so valuable because God is saving you, David, for something great. Your life is hidden in God. Abigail is well aware, not only of David's past, but of David's future. No doubt word had spread about Samuel's anointing of David and the rumors of him being the next king, and that's why she is talking to him about what's coming next. Take a look with me at verse 30. Abigail says, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him, David, ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. Now pause for a second. Here, Abigail speaks directly into David's future. She says, David, this behavior is unworthy of the one who will be Israel's king. Now think about this strategy. As Abigail has to give wisdom, as Abigail has to give advice, you may be in a situation in your life where you have to give someone wisdom and advice. For example, as parents, think about how this might apply to our parenting. Do I treat my kids based on how they are behaving in the present or the past, or can I instead begin to speak into their future and treat them as I hope and pray they will become one day? That's a very different perspective as we're offering someone advice and wisdom. This is what Abigail is doing. David, I believe in you. I think you're going to change your mind here. Because when you get to your destiny, what story are you going to tell when you get there? You don't want to tell a story of needless bloodshed. Hey, David, how did you become king? Well, I went around slaughtering all these innocent people till everybody was terrified of me, and they just made me their ruler. Is that the story you want to tell when you get there, David? Instead, Abigail says, David, your restraint, your reliance on God's intervention would be much more fitting for the one who will rule over God's people. Her whole speech is amazing. Abigail is amazing. She is purposeful. She's intentional. She's full of wisdom. David cannot fail to be impressed by her eloquence, by the persuasiveness of her words and the absolute skill she has here. Abigail is the hero of this story, and by listening to her wise words, David comes to his senses. Take a look with me at verse 32. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. And then David accepted from her hand what she brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. Because David listens to Abigail's wise advice and waits for God to resolve his grievances against Nabal, the Lord vindicates him. And that leads us to movement three, repaying evil 
with good. Now, before we get there, let me ask a theological question. Who is it that stopped David from rashly taking matters into his own hands and shedding innocent blood? The answer is God did. The unseen hand of God is made so clear as we work our way through this story. Spurgeon, who preached on this text, titled his his message, Restraining Grace, which is defined as the grace which God sends to prevent us, his people, his saints, from running into sin. God, aren't you grateful for God's restraining grace in your life? Does God restrain in this circumstance? Yes. Does God restrain in other circumstances? God restrains in every circumstance. Edwards was talking about this in one of his works and writes about this wonderfully. He says, quote, God's work in the restraint that he exercises over a wicked world is a glorious work. God's holding the reins on the corruption of a wicked world and setting boundaries to their wickedness is a more glorious work than his ruling the raging of the sea and setting bounds to its proud waves. Our God works in his restraining grace. And aren't you like me? Don't you have stories in your lives where you say, God, thank you so much for restraining me from committing this or that in this or that situation? Aren't you like me? And you look back and you go, man, whoa, I am so glad the Lord prevented me from going down that path. We realize the words of that old hymn are so true. Quote, when in the slippery paths of youth with foolish steps I run, your hand unseen conveyed me up and brought me safe to man. The story is about the restraining grace of God. I shudder to think where I would be without the grace of God. Isn't that true for you? I mean, what about you, sir? What about you, ma'am? Where would you be without the grace of God? But this is also equally true here, and we need to acknowledge that although it was God who restrained David, God did not act in a vacuum. And this is where we find this amazing encounter involving this young lady, Abigail, to whom we've been introduced as one who is both beautiful and intelligent and discerning, and God uses her greatly. Oh, David says, if you had not come, just at the right moment, I would have committed these atrocities. So who really restrained David? Well, God did. Well, Abigail did. Well, God did. Well, Abigail did. This is called in theology concurrence. It's 100% God and 100% Abigail. It's a mystery, but don't let the mystery overturn your confidence in God's restraining grace. Abigail's the hero, but she's greatly used by God. But the most important lesson I think we learn here is the lesson that we we get from David. David listens. And here's how that applies to me, and that applies to you. You need to learn to embrace the wise advice that the Lord provides in your life. We all lack wisdom. We all need advisors. We all have blind spots. David listens to Abigail as a messenger from God himself. The question for me, the question for you is, will you and I listen to the wise advice that God sends our way? Or the other option is, will we be like Nabal, the fool? That's the choice.
Let me finish the story. Verse 36. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. So Abigail arrives home to find her foolish husband pretending to be a king. It's a tragic picture, isn't it? The abuse of alcohol. Matthew Henry says there is not a surer sign that a man has but little wisdom nor a surer way to ruin the little that he has than by drinking to excess. This is Nabal. Here he is, drunk, pretending to be a big shot. Nabal wants to sit on this throne himself. Nabal wants to be king. Here's Nabal. Maybe you're familiar with that Simon and Garfunkel song about Richard Corey. They say that Richard Corey owned one half of this whole town with political connections. He spread his wealth around. The papers print his picture almost everywhere he goes. Richard Corey at the opera. Richard Corey at the show. And the rumor of his parties and the orgies on his yachts Oh, he surely must be happy with everything he's got. This is Nabal. Alistair Begg summarizes all of 1 Samuel chapter 25 with this succinct sentence. David was a king tempted to act like a fool, and Nabal is a fool pretending to be king. That about sums it up. Verse 37. Then in the morning... When Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. This is a warning that will happen to all of those who reject the Lord and his authority. Psalm chapter 2, kiss the son lest he be angry with you, and you perish along the way. Here lies Nabal, very rich, very drunk, very dead. What an obituary. What a sad eulogy. But not so sad for David. In fact, take a look with me at verse 39. It says, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> That's just something I added at the end. <laughs> the story turned out very differently than the way it started, though. Did Abigail know it was going to turn out this way? No. Did David know that it was going to turn out this way? No. But this was God's plan. Notice David's words here on the screen about God's involvement. He says it was God who brought about justice here upon Nabal. Do you see that? Friends, that's the lesson for us. To repay evil with good takes great faith. We have to believe like David that God is able to judge and we have to trust him. You have to believe that God vindicates his people when they turn to him for justice. you got to believe that in your soul. Can you do that? Can you leave your enemies into God's hands? Man, that takes patience because he's not working on my clock. How about you? That takes patience to wait for God and wait for his timing. 
But this is what David has been learning to do throughout this whole section of 1 Samuel. While he's on the run, David has has got to learn to trust God. And this is the main point of the message, friends. If we as God's people will trust God and respond to evil with good, then God himself, God himself will take up our case and take that which was meant for evil and turn it into good. That's the lesson. So how do we apply this passage to our lives? Here we have three different characters in our story with three very different responses to their enemies and three very different responses to evil. Take a look at the next slide, if you will. We have Nabal, who returns evil for good. This is foolish. Then we have David. He's tempted to repay evil for evil. This is natural. This is predictable. And then we have Abigail, who returns good for evil. And she is remarkable. In a sense, you would say, Abigail is way ahead of her time. The Old Testament ethics said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, and David and his mighty men were ready to repay. But there is a higher standard that's available that Abigail points us toward and that the Lord Jesus articulates for us, doesn't he? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Then you'll be children of my Father in heaven who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Friends, don't settle for predictable. Don't settle for what's natural. The Bible calls us to aim for what's remarkable. And this is reflective of our God. Let me share one more verse from 1 Peter 3. As the worship team comes, I want to show you how Peter actually quotes David. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, Peter quotes David from Psalm 34. And I put that part in a box for you. Let me read it for you. Peter says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And here's the quote. For whoever would love life and see good days must... Keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now friends, this is a wonderful and remarkable way to live. But if you're a Christian, if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, Let me remind you what's at the center of our faith story. Let me remind you what's at the very core of everything that we believe. We have a king. We have a king who did not respond to our evil with evil, but instead overcame our evil with good. Romans 5.11 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is the core of what we believe. We believe in a king who did not treat us as our sins deserve. Rather, we serve a gracious and merciful king who rather returned our evil with the greatest good in all of the universe. And now this king turns to you and he turns to me and he says, follow me. Follow me. 
Can you just imagine a church full of people, men and women, who take this seriously, who actually follow in his steps? Let's be that church. Can we pray together? Dear Father, thank you so much for this precious reminder. And I want to pray right now for the person sitting here who's struggling, who is struggling with this passage and struggling with this sermon. I ask that you would be there for them in a very special way. Would you help them to do what they cannot do in their own strength? Father, our spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So I ask, by your Holy Spirit, would you take this truth and apply it to our lives? And we ask this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen.